You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Exodus. Deliverance. A way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. Good morning. This morning, if you would, turn into the book of Exodus because we're going to continue there. We're going to be covering a large section of Scripture this morning, Exodus 28 through 31, which is always a difficult task, especially in a large narrative like we're looking at today. While you guys turn there, I want to, each week, we highlight several things or one or two things, or however many that we're celebrating as a community. So first, we'll start off with this. Yesterday, that my daughter, who's nine and I, won a CrossFit competition together. And if, yeah, well, if it sounds like that's boastful, I just want you to know it's because it is. And so it was, it was intentional. Second, and more importantly, I'd like to have Ronald Gogan and Hunter Turner stand up for me real quick. So Ronnie and Hunter, where's Hunter at? So Ronnie and Hunter both walked yesterday and celebrated their graduation from Western Seminary. Yeah. So Hunter with her degree, uh, her master's in counseling, and Ronnie with his master's of divinity. And so uh, Hunter is at some point going to be moving into the counseling ministry and serve God in that capacity, and Ronnie is going to become a chaplain in the military and be able to serve God at some point in that context. So we're thankful for them and for the ways that God has used their education to equip and build them up so they can go forth and make disciples. So again, one more time for Ronnie and Hunter. So thanks, guys. Turn to Exodus, like I said, 28. That's where we're going to be picking up today, Exodus 28. Exodus 28 right now, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Then bring near to Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful 
whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priest. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine wine linen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as a church family, we get to celebrate what you're doing within our church family. We thank you for Hunter and Ronnie and for the years of dedication that they've put forth into their training and into their degree. And Father, we pray that you would use that in such a way to make disciples and to advance and further your kingdom. I pray that they would have this as their greatest source of encouragement and strength and hope, that as our careers change, as our roles change, and many things change in life, they have an identity in Christ that will never shift or change for all of eternity. And they also have the same job description wherever they go, to make disciples. And so whatever work, force, place that they're in, let them remember that's why they're there, to make disciples. Father, I recognize that in the midst of a church family this morning, as we've celebrated things, there's also people that are hurting and grieving, that are going through a difficult time and situation and circumstance in life, and we pray that you would comfort them this morning through your word. Father, we pray that the greatest comfort they would find is knowing that you are faithful, knowing that you are good, and knowing that you've displayed the fullness of your faithfulness and goodness in the gospel. Let your sacrifice, Jesus, let you as the great high priest and also the ultimate sacrifice who laid down your life be a source of strength and encouragement and hope for our souls this morning. Minister to us, speak to us, encourage us, challenge us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Where we've come from in the book of Exodus is this. We started off seeing that God was going to deliver this people who were in oppression for 400 years. They were slaves to the Egyptian people. And God said, I promise I will do that. And God did that. And he did it through a series of events, through plagues. And then we saw the Passover with the Passover lamb. And then after that, what we saw and what we got to see was this, is that God continue to save and deliver his people because they had a battle after they left Egypt they also had to cross a Red Sea in which God delivered them. We see God's deliverance time and time again in the book of Exodus, but you have to hear and see this because we've stated this and we want to say it again, is God didn't look at his children and say, hey, if you want to be my children, obey my commandments, and then we'll talk about your deliverance. God said, I'm a faithful God, a God who operates out of grace. Therefore, I will save you. I will deliver you out of oppression, out of bondage, and out of slavery. I will bring you across the Red Sea. I will give you freedom. And then, because I have set you free, because I have made you my people, then I will give you my law. We can't reverse that. Or else it's not Christianity, it's not the gospel. It's not, here's the law, obey. And if you obey, I deliver. God says, I've delivered out of grace. And because of that, I've given my law. And so the book of Exodus so far that we've gone through is, I mean, it's just entertaining. There's a lot of epic stuff happening. And then we get to kind of the chapters where Brad preached last week and where we're at today. What just happened was God gave in a covenant ceremony the Ten Commandments, and he gave his law. And now what God's doing after that is he's showing this, the whole purpose of all this, of delivering you out of Egypt, of, of, of saving you, of sparing you, and bringing you out was just not so you could float around in the world by yourselves. The whole point of all of that and my deliverance was so that I could be with you. 
so that I could be your God and you could be my people. And so the tabernacle was this. It was God saying, hey, the whole purpose of all of this, and even if we go all the way back to, to Genesis, like Brad looked at last week and showed the comparisons of how this story points to the story in Eden and how this tabernacle pictures the one in Eden, we look at all that to say God's purpose of saving his people was not just so they could be forgiven, released, delivered from oppression. It was so that God could have a relationship and presence with his people. So when we pick up on a text today, like we're in for these next few chapters, let me say a few things. Scripture is not written for our entertainment. And so when we get to a text like today, where there's a lot of fine details, we must know that. Scripture is not ultimately written for our entertainment. So therefore, when we get to the entertaining stories, we're like, yeah, when we get to this, we just kind of flip by them. Scripture was written for the glory of God and to reveal characteristics about God and ultimately his plan of salvation. But also, I, I think that this section of scripture that we're looking at today should bring a lot of comfort. Because if you are someone who's going through a difficult situation and circumstance in life, or you're, you are a type A personality, someone who's very focused on all the small details of life, here's what you might be prone to think. You might be prone to think that God operates in the big details of life, the macro visionary stuff. This shows you God is the God of that, no doubt. But he's also the God of the micro, small, intricate details as well. We see that. We see the way that these garments are made. We see that everything is twisted together. We see that everything is placed to show that God is a God who's over the very... So, so let me say this. There's nothing in your life, as small as you might think it is, that God is not God over and that God doesn't care about because it shows here, cares about the really small things, the small details. It also shows this. God is a God of patience. We might want things quick, but there was no way you were going to make all of this really fast. It was going to require tedious work and patience. And sometimes in life, we just want things to happen fast. We want our sanctification just to happen. We want things to happen fast. And this, this shows it's going to be slow. I mean, Jesus showed up not when automobiles were around, but when you could only walk. His ministry was slow and tedious, faithful work, which means this. We're seeing that we know how to worship God in the mundane, ordinary stuff of life. Many times people think, how I'm going to worship God is I'm going, I'm going overseas on this extraordinary missions trip, and I'm going to do this. This shows us that the tedious work of an architect, of a builder, of people who like sewing and doing this stuff, that is the stuff of everyday life that we worship God doing. You can worship God by changing diapers. You can worship God by building a home. You can worship God to the midst of sewing. You can worship God to these things in the everyday mundane stuff of life. Because honestly, that's where life typically exists. And that's what we're getting to see here. And so before we blow past something like this, I think we should look at it and go, wow, God cares about the details. There's some important stuff here. What we also need to see is this. Is this text that's in front of us before, uh, that's before us today, 28 through 31, it's actually about ordaining priests. So this is an ordination of priests that is happening. And it's about the sort of clothing that's required for them to wear. And it's about the sort of sacrifices that's required to be made for them. And it's about the sacrifices that's to be made on a daily basis, both morning and night for the nation of Israel. What we are seeing is that God takes it serious, who the priests are and how the sacrifices are to go and, and how are they are to look. It's worth noting that the role of priests in the Old Testament was reserved for men. There's not a single female priest in the Old Testament. 
let me say this, that in no way, shape, or form devalues women. It's just a specific role or title that God had men do in the Old Testament. Many times in our culture today, we like to say that roles, jobs, and titles are equated to worth, which is really sad. I would never want to tell my daughters that or my son that or anyone that because our jobs change, our roles change, and our titles change. Our greatest worth is that for those that are in Christ is that you are in Christ as a child of God. But we are seeing that today, and we are getting to look at this today. And so here's my main point that I want you to walk away and remember, okay? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I'm sure you guys have heard that said. So we're going to use that common phrase that is said is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so what I want to start off with is saying is this. is there, There's this movie that was out years ago called Liar, Liar, where Jim Carrey plays the role of Fletcher Reed. And so the premise of the movie is that for one day, he cannot lie. And so... His child tells him something about beauty. And, and, and his child says, hey, dad, my teacher said that beauty is what's on the inside. To which he responds, because for one day he cannot lie, he says, that's what all ugly people say. The, the point of this, and what I want to say is that we are all image bearers of God, which means that every person in this room, whether you are a child of God, a believer in Jesus Christ or not, you bear the image of God, which is beautiful. And because of that, we are all pulled and drawn to what is beautiful. We are all pulled and drawn to what is beautiful. That is why oftentimes if you look at a beautiful sunset, you are just drawn into the beauty of it. And sometimes if it's so beautiful with all the different colors, all you can do is stare. The whole thing though is that all of the beauty inside of the world is not meant for us to worship that thing that's been created. It's to point us to the creator. We are pulled towards beautiful and we know what's beautiful. What we'll see is that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So we're going to look through this in themes because we're covering 28 through 31. So the first thing that we're going to look at, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, is the holy garments and and coat that we see in scripture. So start with me in, in, in chapter 28 again. Let's look at how often through these few chapters that garments or coat comes up. Here we go. Verse two, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty, for glory and for beauty. Let's keep going. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit that they will make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make. A breast piece, an ephod, a robe. Remember I said a coat, a coat of checker work. Let's keep moving on. Again, we find in this same chapter in verse 40, it tells us the purpose of this. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for the purpose of glory and beauty. We keep going on in chapter 29, verse 5. We, we see this again. You shall take the garments, again garments, and put on Aaron the coat, again coat, and the robe of the ephod. Jump down to verse 8 of 29. Then you shall bring his sons and put, again, coats on them. Let's keep cruising in 29. In 21, it says this. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Verse 29. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. Keep cruising all the way over to 31, chapter 31, verse 10. And finally worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, the garments of his sons for their service 
as priest. There is a lot to be said about garments and coats. But the purpose of creating them was, look here again, verse 2, for glory and beauty. We get the glory piece. But how often do you think about the beauty, that God creates things for beauty? Even if you go to a nice restaurant, they have people whose their job is to make the appearance of the plate and food look good. God cares about beauty. And the purpose of creating these garments was for glory and beauty, to display God's glory and God's beauty. And here is why. These garments, and I think we have a picture of them. I'm not going to go through all the details of them in the text. But as you can see, the original garment and even the undergarment, they were white, completely white until the sash, the turban, the, the breast piece, and everything else went around them, including, including the pomegranates and the bells at the bottom. They were white. Why? The garments were glorious and beautiful because they were symbolic of holiness and purity. The garments were meant to show that God is doing something to cover our unholiness and our lack of purity and make something beautiful and glorious to him. We are drawn to beauty. And God tells us here that these garments, they're going to be beautiful externally. But, but, but we know something, that all the external garments in the world and all the beauty Forbes tells us that $1,700 annually per family is spent on garments. Out of all the garments in the world, you can dress, you can clothe yourself in. The reality within every human knows this. There is something wrong on the inside. There is still shame I feel, guilt I feel, something that is wrong on the inside. And so if we trace it back all the way to the garden, to the beginning, we look at Adam and Eve, and the first thing that happens when they sin and rebel against God is they notice something. They feel shame and that they're naked. And so in Genesis 3, we see this. Genesis 3, 20 through 21 says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his garments of skins and clothed them. Garment is the same word that we see for coat in Exodus 28. It's the same Hebrew word, kutonit is what it is. So we see that in Genesis 3, God provides a kutonit, a coat for them because they're naked. And then we see the priestly garment is a coat that is to be worn. Why? Because ultimately God is providing the garments that are needed to deal with our lack of purity, our lack of holiness before holy God and make us that. You see, our culture is obsessed with beauty. It's a massive industry. Why? Have you thought about that? Why is our culture obsessed with beauty? Because beauty gives you power. Beauty gives you power. If I can have beauty, and I'm not just speaking to women, men and women, if I can have beauty or appearance, then I can have approval, which is my idol, I can have control, which is my idol, and I can have comfort, which is my idol. Therefore, I will worship beauty and external appearance, spending all this money on this because I'm trying to deal with something that's on the inside, which is idolatry, which is sin. I'm not saying beauty is bad. I'm saying beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I'm saying beauty is a good thing, but beauty is supposed to point us to God to give him glory. This is why scripture, when it talks about beauty, it literally tells us that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, God himself. Because when God looks at people, look at 1 Samuel 16, 7. You don't have to turn there, but you can mark these for later. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. 
Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4 says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. See, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but beauty before God is internal. But here we have priestly garments that are external. Why? Because God is ultimately showing something. That in the end, what God is going to do is do something that is our greatest need. Since no garment is going to satisfy what's on the inside, these garments are meant to show the way that God is going to array someone with beauty and purity and splendor and awesomeness. What is that? It's pointing to what Christ is going to do spiritually for us, starting from the inside and clothe us in his spiritual garments and his robes of righteousness that's talked about in Isaiah 61.10. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Because when we talk about stuff like this, we're talking about holy garments and coats that are beautiful. Great, what do I need to do? What do I need to get rid of? And, and oftentimes we, we would do like a purge, you know? I, I'll, I'll sacrifice, I'll, I'll get rid of my garments. And people make a lot of money doing that. I remember years ago when the sweet little lady from Japan made her way into our home through the Netflix series Tidying Up named Marie Kondo. Some of you are familiar with this. She went through and showed how to get rid of all the excess stuff in your home that you don't need. And also how to refold your clothes like burritos in a drawer, which just, I mean, made me so angry because I didn't know what they were. But I remember having this conversation with my wife where she was like, Marie Kondo says that, uh, if you don't love it, then you need to get rid of it. And I was like, I don't have the strong of feelings for any of my clothes. So I would technically need to get rid of all, all of them. And so I, we, I had the go away pile. And she's like, she says that you need to say goodbye to your clothes. And I was like, I'm not, I, I, re, I refuse to speak to my clothes, to an inanimate object. At this point, I feel like I'm venting for therapeutic sake. So safe, safe space. But let me say this. When we talk about, and if I said, hey, get rid of all your clothes. Like someone who once wrote a book about, hey, just live with seven garments of clothing or something like that. You'd be like, yeah, I can do that. Let me challenge you to do this and see if you're still willing to do it. Before you go to bed tonight, confess to your spouse or friend a sin that you have not been confessing or telling anyone because you've been purposely hiding it and start there. And here's why. Because what we do is we as a society like to make ourselves look as pretty as we can externally. And, and, and we like to do stuff to cover up what's really broken and wrong on the inside. But if you want to get to the heart of what's going on, start with confession. Because what will actually happen there is you will be left going, I can no longer put up these fig leaves and hope that you stare at them. I can no longer put up my beauty and my appearances and say, here, be distracted with this. I will have to declothe myself of everything that I've dressed myself in and rely upon the righteousness of Christ. And then you will get to say, this is what it's like to know that I have greater clothing than everything else that I've been trying to hide in. So that, that, that would be my first challenge today as I knock that over. My first challenge today, confess sin. Confess the sin that you have not wanted to confess. Today, not tomorrow. And some of you are like, I, I know which one I'm going to do that's my second thing or my third thing. No, no, no. Go back to the first one. Do that one. Next. What we also see in the text that's before us today is remembrance. These garments are meant to bring remembrance to the Lord. Look here in 28 verse 12. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod 
as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his shoulders for remembrance. It goes on in, in, in verse 15 to tell us what the ephod looked like and what the breastpiece looked like. Look at 15. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment and skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and a fine twine linen shall you make it. It shall be square and double, a span its length, and a span in breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones. Pay attention here. This will come up later. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row, and the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jason, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row shall be a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. Go, go ahead and keep going with me to verse 29 of the same chapter. The purpose of this breastpiece, it tells us, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Go over to chapter 30, verse 16. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord as to make atonement for your lives. Now, what is going on for this theme of remembrance and, and that these garments and this outfit and these stones were placed over the priest's heart? Here's what's going on. Two things. One is that the people needed to see that when the priest went in to make a sacrifice, that he was making a sacrifice for himself and for them because they were sinners. But what they also needed to see, how beautiful it was that these stones, uh, rows of four on three each, were positioned over the heart because they represented the nation of Israel as God's chosen and precious people whom he loved. God didn't need to be reminded as though he was going to forget. Israel needed to be reminded or else they would forget. And also, it was needed to be seen that it wasn't because they were sinless and perfect that God would remember them. God would remember them because he was beautiful, because he was good. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and God chose the nation of Israel, not because they were stronger or bigger, as the Torah tells us, but God chose them because he wanted them. And so they had a place of remembrance in his heart as the priest went in and represented God on behalf of the people. That's how dear they were to God. Israel was beautiful to God because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Though sinful, still beautiful because God had chosen them. What about the sacrifices? My goodness, look at the sacrifices taking place here. Start with me in chapter 29, in verse 18. And burn the whole ram, and on the altar it is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, food offering to the Lord. Verse 25, same chapter. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. Verse 41 of the same chapter. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with a grain offering and, it, uh, <clears throat> and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma food offering to the Lord. Chapter 30, verse 8. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it as a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. What is going on here? If you look at 28 through 31, what you will see is a whole lot of blood and a whole lot of sacrificing and a whole lot of animals that are being laid on an altar. It is bloody, and in a lot of ways, it is smelly. Why? Why? 
All of this isn't being done because God has some sort of hungering for the smell of lamb or bulls. All of this is being done, and it's a pleasing aroma to God because God wants to dwell with his people. But since he is a holy and righteous and sinless God, in order for that to make place, sacrifices have to be made to be paid for the sins. So the reason, the, the reason this bloody, smelly sacrifice is a pleasing aroma to God is because God gets to dwell with his people. And the sacrifices are what make that possible. It's essentially the point of all of this is that God desires to, to dwell with his people. And you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 29 and verse 45, it says that, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that they might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The sacrifices and what's going on is bloody, but it's a reminder that something needs to be done to be atoned for and to, and to be paid for our sin. Think about this. Think about beauty in this lens. Every beautiful sunset you've ever seen, if you can imagine the Andes Mountains or the just crystal blueness of the Caribbean Sea, all of that, whatever you deem beautiful in your lifetime and then in your parents' lifetime before that and for the existence of humanity, you add all of that up, all of that beauty, all of that power that is seen in the oceans, waves, and all of that, and you still are left with just a sliver and a glimpse of God's infinite beauty. No one would ever imagine just taking mud and dirt and throw it on the bride of her wedding day as she's arrayed in white and looks beautiful. Why would we ever think that an infinite holy God and his presence is something that we could just march right into without being consumed? All of this is showing because the word die or death comes up six times, that God is holy, yet he wants to dwell with his people. And here's how it's possible. But if you don't do it like this, you will die. Death is the result because he will consume us because of how beautiful and glorious and magnificent he is. Let me give a couple more challenges. We're to remember that God remembers us. And that as we sing the, the song before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever uh, pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. Remind people. We are called to exhort or encourage our Christian brothers and sisters every day. Try this as a challenge for the next week. Remind people of who they are as a child of God. And then as far as sacrifice goes, a challenge there, let, let me challenge you with this now. Not as a means to become accepted before God, but what in your life could possibly be a hindrance in your relationship with God that maybe you need to look at and consider sacrificing? Share that with someone. Lay that down on the altar. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe it's Instagram because those are things that are leading you into greater sin. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's your spending habits. Maybe it's a relationship. I don't know. But consider whatever that is that could be a hindrance right now. Lastly, these sacrifices are beautiful because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The garments, they're beautiful because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But flip over and look with me at chapter 31, verse 1. Let's start here. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. 
And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed him. God is providing someone to do all of this skillful work from the line of Judah. Where is Jesus supposed to come from? The line of Judah. Ultimately, we can sacrifice like crazy. We can confess our sins like crazy or try and do that today. We can do all these things. But what we need, because there's going to need to be a continual sacrifice that's offered by a priest. In fact, one thing we see is that these are being done so the priests themselves can be consecrated. They can be made holy. But then what they're doing is morning and night. Think about that. Every morning and every night, these priests are going to the altar and they are offering animals. Why? Because Israel had to be reminded on a daily basis, there was a constant smell going up from the altar that they're sinful and need a sacrifice to be in the presence of a holy God. So what they were going to need is someone to come in who could do all of the work, someone who could be everything, who, who could be all-encompassing, someone who could be the priest and someone who could be the ultimate sacrifice. Otherwise, animal blood was going to have to be spilt and it was never going to be sufficient. And so that's exactly what happens. Christ comes from the line of Judah, the one who comes to do all the work and do it perfectly. He, he's the only one, when it says he made him to, uh, to know no sin, am I getting that right? Hang on, okay. <laughs> so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Christ never knew sin, was never associated with it, never affiliated with it at all. Christ's life was lived as a living sacrifice to God. Every moment of every day, he did not do stuff for his own vanity and his own glory. And so people would look at him. He was doing something to say, this is all being done. A life lived in full, complete surrender to the glory of God. He lived that way in perfect obedience for 30 years so that he could take his life and lay it down on the altar of the cross. You see, Christ is the high priest but he's also the sacrifice that is made. And since he's infinite and eternal, it's a once and for all time done sacrifice. You see, no one would ever for hundreds of years ever look at the cross and go, whoa, that's amazing. That's beautiful. That's incredible. Wow. No one would ever do that. The tree takes you back thousands of years to another tree in a garden where other people are naked because of their rebellion against God. And somehow the sinless son of God is stripped bare, humiliated, naked on a cross. And the people that are Christians in Christ look at that and go, that is beautiful. That is horrific. It's bloody. It's grotesque. But at the same time, for those in Christ, it is absolutely beautiful because he was in the place that I should have been in, paying the price that I should have paid. The Son of God, God himself in human form, was stripped bare, naked, humiliated, so that we, as children of God, would never have to be worried about being clothed with righteousness and the garments of salvation ever again. We would never have to be laid bare and naked before a holy God. Instead, we would bear the beauty and the glorience and the radiance, the holiness and the purity of Christ because through faith in him, he made that belong to us. So when a Christian looks at the cross through unveiled eyes, we, we look through it as beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. And we look at that and go, wow, for me, that's incredible. That's incredible. 
And as a daughter of children, I can only imagine a father who would see their son humiliated, literally stripped bare, and want to do everything you could to clothe them. But the father knew that in doing that for his son would mean that it wouldn't be provided for us. And so his son stayed. For those who have placed their trust and faith in Christ, we live with a God who looks at us and sees a reflection of his own glory and his own beauty and his own holiness. That's incredible. God looks at his children. You can say, I don't feel that way, but objectively, if you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus, God sees you that way. Isaiah 61.10 reminds us that we are robed in righteousness, that we are clothed in the garments of salvation. That's what we bear. We look at the cross, we look at the tomb, we look at all that and go, that's beautiful. Because in it, we know that that beauty and that glory of what Christ accomplished was put on us and that we get to live out of the freedom of joy before God. Hear this, if you think that you can do something to change the way that God sees you moment by moment as anything other than holy and pure and righteous, then you don't have the gospel. You don't have good news. What you have is something that you can do to manipulate a holy God, which is not possible, and it's also not the gospel. You don't get to, through your momentary actions, change how God views you and sees you. God chooses by his own grace to look at you and see you in light of his son's purity and righteousness that's been given to you. You can't alter that, but you can receive it and accept it and rejoice in it. Moment by moment, it says in 2 Corinthians, I love this, for we, 2 Corinthians 2.15, for we are the aroma of Christ. Think about that. We are the aroma of Christ to God. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. I've mentioned this before. But you and your smelliest sinful moment are not a stench to God because what burns from your life is not your shame and not your sin and not your guilt, but the sacrifice that Christ made on your behalf. You can only be and will always be for eternity a pleasing aroma to God because of Christ's once and for all time sacrifice that he made on the altar for us. And then we don't have to lose heart, as it says in 4.16 of 2 Corinthians. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day by day. Therefore, what do we do in light of this? God has ushered and commissioned us as a priesthood to live as a priesthood. You see, the Israelites were all called to be priests, but instead they wanted someone else to do the priestly work for them instead of being a nation of priests. But that's ultimately been God's plan and his desire. And so that's who the church becomes. We become a priest that does priestly work. We make things beautiful. That's why God gives us flowers and then we take the flowers and make bouquets because we get to take things and make them beautiful. It's why he gives us an apple tree and then we get to make delicious apple pie or furniture made of apple because we get to participate in what it is to be image bearers of God. And so as a kingdom of priests, as it calls us in 1 Peter chapter 2, let me encourage you with this, that all the work that you do in your workplace should be done to ultimately, with complete excellence for this purpose. Do, if you're an architect, if you're a builder, whatever you are, do beautiful work all for the purpose of pointing all to the glory of God, because that's what he's called us to be, a kingdom of priests. We are ambassadors in our workplace. We are people that represent God. So we get to go in and share 
through our work and through the way that we act and conduct ourselves as new image bearers in Christ, we live out as a constant reflection and reminder to people, this is why I work the way I do. This is why I respond the way I do, for God's beauty, for God's glory. I won't read all of this, but I'm going to close with Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, starting in verse 9, something amazing (laughs) is here. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven of the seven last plagues and, I, and, and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And if you jump down to verse 18, it says, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the the fourth emerald, and it goes through and it names 12 stones again. Why? Because in the end, when Christ returns and he brings home the new Jerusalem, What it is, is we are getting to see a kingdom of priests in its full. The city of God is picturing the bride of Christ, his people. God loves the city because God loves the people that make up the city and Jesus loves his bride. And so he's like, look, I'm going to show you the bride. And then the city comes down because God ultimately desires to be with his people and for his people to be with him. And they are pictured in this radiant glory because that's what God makes his bride. And then in the end, we get to see and experience all of that together, God's beauty and God's glory for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. In so many ways, I feel like I didn't do justice and can't do justice to the beauty and the glory of all that is in these chapters. But Jesus, I recognize this. You lived a life of complete adoration and sacrifice to God on my behalf and on our behalf. We celebrate now your broken body and shed blood as the ultimate sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.